Well, all of you know, of course, about the terrible tragedy that occurred a little over a week ago. And my heart certainly went out to the Kennedy family when I saw what had happened and I knew as a professional pilot myself very likely what had occurred to that young man flying late at night out over the water with no horizon and perhaps suffering spatial disorientation and then in a tight spiral just going right into the water at terrific speed. I don't know what happened in those few seconds or moments when they were on the way down, but I do know one thing that is a blessing, and that is that they didn't feel a thing. Whatever length of time it was, from the time he knew he was in trouble, and the people sitting in the airplane with him, his wife and his sister-in-law, knew that they were in trouble, uh, that was the pain and the suffering and the expectancy of what was going to happen. But from that instant on, then what? What was next? What are they feeling, saying, thinking, doing now? Where are they now? Well, the family chose cremation. I think a lot of you were glued to the television set and saw the entire procedure. The naval vessel going out to sea, commanding people to stay up to 17 miles away, I imagine, because some macabre, bizarre entrepreneur might have snuck as close as they could to take aboard a couple of hundred gallons of seawater and throw some ashes in it and sell it in the vial for $100 a piece. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. But they wanted all ships and boats to stay at least 17 miles away as they went through the ritual, which Ted Kennedy said was like returning to the sea. Ted Kennedy and the entire family, of course, are Roman Catholic and ostensibly believe in God. But he said we all came from the sea, and so there's a sort of a mystical thought in a lot of people's minds when someone's ashes are distributed over the waves that they are returning to the sea. And that point was also made. When Dr. Billy Graham was interviewed on ABC by Connie Chung, he, he was asked point blank, Dr. Graham, why did God allow this? And I immediately grabbed a pad there and a pencil and began to write because... I have dealt with that question for over 42 years. Why does God allow war? Why does God allow human suffering? Why does God allow disease and death? Why does he allow infant mortality? Why did God let this happen? Dr. Graham said, and I quote, I don't know. Only God knows. End of quote. Those are his exact words. I don't know. Well, those who have listened to my program and read my booklets and read the magazines, of which I've been executive editor or founder for many, many years, if they've really studied it, do know. They know exactly what happened. And they know exactly where those people are today. They know exactly in what state they are existing today. And they know whether or not they are reunited in heaven with Joe Sr., with Joe Jr., who was killed during World War II in a fighter airplane, with JFK, who was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald, with Bobby Kennedy, who was also assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan in Los Angeles, with their other family members who have met very untimely and tragic deaths, including one of Robert Kennedy's sons who collided with a tree a little over a year or so ago and died in a skiing accident, including Jacqueline Kennedy, is JFK Jr. one of the handsomest young men, one of the most likely young men that you have ever seen? 
and his lovely wife and his daughter-in-law, are they now reunited with the Kennedy clan in heaven above? Are they all there together laughing and enjoying eternity with Jesus Christ the Lord in heavenly mansions? Well, Dr. Graham was asked directly by Connie Chung, and I quote, Is John Kennedy Jr. in heaven? There was a pause, a discernible pause. And then Dr. Graham said, and I quote, I am almost certain that is true. End of quote. I don't know, and I can't characterize why the pause. That's for you to do. But it's interesting that Dr. Graham said that, and my wife and I were saying aloud, why can't he say something about the resurrection? Why can't he say something about what happens next when we die? Now, most all of you would probably think that God was somehow involved. We know the Bible does say this, that God knows every hair on our head, doesn't he? Jesus said so. He said that there is not a sparrow that falls to the ground that God does not know about it. So God's great omniscient mind can comprehend and to know anything he chooses to know, whether or not his great divine limitless intelligence is literally focused in on the exact number of hairs on your head at this moment, I somehow doubt whether or not at this instant he is focusing in on whether a sparrow has fallen to the ground in maybe Kansas, I also doubt. But if he chooses to know, he can know and he does know whatever he chooses to know. Was God actually involved in what happened a little over a week ago? in that tightly spiraling aircraft on its way down to impact against the water at somewhere between 60, 70, 80 miles an hour, perhaps, so that those people died instantly. Was God aware of it? He could have been. Was he? Did God actually decide to take these young people and to, as some evangelicals say, take them home at that moment? And as their family grieves, and as the entire nation grieves, and people around the world grieve, I think you and I all know, if we would look at past history of the Kennedy family, with his father having been the President of the United States, with his brother virtually a shoe-in to become another Kennedy President, and then you look at the son of John Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy with his very incredible good looks. He was called a prince, America's prince. And it's almost like a worship ceremony throughout the entire week. We have watched the public adulation, the public sense of great loss and mourning that this virtual prince of America from Camelot was taken away from amongst us. As I remember what one empty-headed young lady said who was questioned by a roving reporter on the streets of New York following the Clinton election the first time, she was asked, why did you vote for President Clinton? And she said with a grin, well, I think he's kind of cute. I'll never forget that. Now, as I look at JFK, and I've seen interminably some of the replays of his interview with Larry King Live, I had not known much about him. I hadn't seen him. I don't follow that kind of magazine or publication. I don't follow all of the uh, famous and, and the great and so on of this world. I don't read all the movie magazines, all that. So I wasn't aware of anything. It's just a big blank 
in my mind, from the day, literally, that he stood there as a little boy of nearly three, saluting as the catafalque went by and his father was being buried, until the other day when he was involved in a plane crash. Everything in between from age three until the other day was a blank in my mind. But I will tell you this. There is certain information that has come to light in all of the media hype over this in the last few days that he was apparently thinking about, or others were contemplating and asking him about that vacant Senate seat in New York. Had Hillary Clinton not been toying with the idea, John Kennedy Jr.'s decision might have been a little bit different. But I'm here to tell you, when you think of that empty-headed response, I think he's kind of cute. And you would apply it to this young man four years from now, or eight years from now, with his background, John Kennedy and Jacqueline Kennedy's son, with his looks, and with his intelligence, and his gifts, there isn't any way on this good green earth he would not have been the President of the United States. That's what I think. Now, I've got to deal with that. Did God then look down and say, no, no, I don't want JFK Jr. to ever be the President of the United States, so I'm going to get him. I don't believe that. Not for one minute. And yet major weekly magazines have come out with the great headlines, The Kennedy Curse. Because they look back at all of the tragedies that have stricken this family, and they put them all together, and then they publish that actually Robert Kennedy even toyed with the idea, and this came out in the interview on ABC with Connie Chung and Dr. Billy Graham as well, that perhaps following the death of Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles, his assassination, that uh, the family was wondering whether or not God was fair, and that indeed Robert Kennedy himself had said aloud whether or not was wondering whether God was fair following the assassination of his brother, the president. I've seen already in some of the articles that I've read that the Kennedy family has dealt with these same questions. They have wondered, are we under some sort of a curse? Does God have it in for us? Doesn't God want us to be in public service? Doesn't he want us to succeed? Teddy will never live down Chappaquiddick because the media will never allow him to do so. In the article, The Kennedy Curse, with all the list there of all the tragedies and all the deaths and all the infamous lawsuits, and I won't even go into that, just one after another, a whole column of them, was a picture of the narrow bridge and the automobile and Ted Kennedy and Chappaquiddick just the other day in one of the weekly news magazines. So men will not forget and will not allow it. Well, as I proceed to answer that question, let's look into, first of all, what most of you already know, and that is, what is man? You know that the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh. It's also the word for me, I, them, that thing, that one, they, our, myself, creature, beast, being, life, body, person, and many other applications. The word nephesh is used at least four times of lower life forms in the first chapter of Genesis before it's ever used of man. It is the word that is always translated soul, but it's also translated body. It's translated beast, that one, that thing, he, as I said, they, theirs, and in many other ways in the Old Testament of the Bible. In Ezekiel 18.20 and Ezekiel 18.4, it says, and I quote, The nephesh that sinneth, it shall die. 
and they translated it there, soul. And I'm grateful to them that they did. Because if they'd said, the body that sins, it shall die, then people who believe in the idea of the immortality of the soul could say, ah, you see there, but the soul doesn't die. But the translators may be erred. They made a mistake. By the way, that is the correct pronunciation, if you care to look it up. Everyone's always trying to correct me. It's air. No, it is not air. It is er, like ergo and ergon and ergonomics. It is er. So, if they thought that they had erred, which they did not, they put down the word soul. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And, of course, the Greek word is suke, P-S-U-C-H-E. You'll recognize that in psychiatry and in the psyche or psychology. And it is the mind or the life principle, the consciousness of man that makes us human instead of animal. If you'll turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. So hope in Christ, hope of eternity... Hope of the forgiveness of sins and life eternal extends beyond death and beyond the grave. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now that is a very hateful word to some people. There are those who disdainfully, because of their clinging to the notion of the immortality of the soul, will call that, quote, soul sleeping. And they don't like it. They don't like to see the words slept or sleeping or asleep being applied to the dead because they want them to be alert, alive, and awake. They want them to be having joy. They want them to be whipping around in heaven. They want them to be driving their heavily Cadillac. They want them to be able to look down and to see you. They want them to be floating around in the air right there at the beer, at the coffin. They want them to actually attend their own funeral ceremony. They don't want them to be inside the cathedral where the memorial service is going on. If you can hear me up there, Bobby, you know, that kind of thing. People will go to a grave and they will talk to their departed loved ones. Ethel, I'm so sorry. On, on. Because they think they can communicate with the dead. So much chicanery, so many hundreds of millions of dollars have been made and spent falsely over people who claim to be able to communicate with the dead. And, of course, demons have been very, very able and willing and ready to cooperate, as they did in the case of the witch at Endor, and in those days, of course, because people did not believe in the idea of a wraith-like soul which left the body at death, but believed in the resurrection, the demons had to conjure up the complete body of the prophet, not just his soul. You can go back and read that if you wish to refresh your memory. This is the Word of God, not, not something that I put in there yesterday. It's in your own Bible. Christ is risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, that's the original sin of Adam, if you sin, if you take of the fruit of the forbidden fruit, you shall die, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's in the future tense. But every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Afterward, none of the mainstream fundamentalist churches believe this. The Roman Catholic Church does not believe this. None of the churches who believe in the immortality of the soul, immediately going either to heaven or to hell, believe this. Those that are Christ's, those that are Christian, those that have been converted, those that have God's Holy Spirit, Christ is their elder brother. They are Christ-like. They are Christ's. Every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, 
afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. But he hasn't come yet. So where are they now? Well, we'll find out. In John 3, verses 12 and 13, Jesus said, quote, If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And in verse 13 he said, And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And if you proceed three more verses, you will find that scripture that Al Gore didn't know. John 3:16, not 16, 3. If you will turn to 1 Thessalonians 4:13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them that are asleep. Now, there is corroboration again. The question as we go along here is, how many times does God need to tell you something before you believe it? Once? Is that enough? Twice? How hard-headed are we? Does God need to tell us three times before we will believe it? Four times? Five? Six? Well, in this case, He will tell us many times that the dead are asleep. The only question is, are you willing to believe it and accept it? Now, if you have preconceived ideas in your mind, and if you've been told all of your life since you were a little toddler and your Sunday go to Eaton clothes that you have an immortal soul, yes, but what about that? Yes, but what about this? Well, yes, what, what about that then? And what about this then? Do you mean there are other scriptures that knock these scriptures in the head? Do you mean to say that the Bible is a book of one absolute contradiction after another? Is the Bible, as some people claim, a book which is open to any kind of private interpretation, or doesn't the Bible itself say that no scripture is of any private interpretation, but that we must be workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing or discerning the word of truth, and that we are to tremble before the word of God, and when God tells us something, we are to believe it. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, and the world is ignorant, and the basic fundamentalist mainstream churches are ignorant of this fact. Concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. And the whole intent of that is so we can be comforted because it is far more comforting to know the real truth about the state of our family members and loved ones and neighbors and friends who have died not being saved, not having accepted Christ as Savior, not having been a member of God's church. What happened to them? Where are they? People worry about that. People wonder what happened to them. A lot of people suspect that there are lots of people dancing around, beating at the flames in hell right now, screaming, and they've been there for years because they simply don't know any better. Now, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that? I do. I know it to be true. I not only believe it, I know it. It's got to be a fact. I've proved it to myself over and over again. If we believe that, that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, there's that word again, sleep in Jesus, will God bring with him. And when does he come? At his coming. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming, and not one moment before. Now, John 11, verses 11 to 14, Christ is at Lazarus' tomb. And he himself used that term. He said that Lazarus was dead, but notice the way he described it. In verse 11, these things said he, and after that he said unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. 
misunderstanding his meaning, as if he didn't know that Lazarus was dead. But he did know that Lazarus was dead. So he used this expression, knowing that Lazarus was dead, and Christ never deceived anybody. Christ never deluded anybody. Christ didn't play games with anybody. He would not use this expression to deliberately make them think he was only asleep. No, no, he said very clearly, Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And the way he couched it, the way he expressed it first was, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth in his heart and mind. Lazarus is dead. Same expression. An expression showing that the dead are profoundly, deeply asleep, unaware of the passing of time. They're not alert. They're not aware. They don't sense. They don't hear. They don't feel. They don't experience. They don't remember. And we will go on and see a few more examples of this. 1 Corinthians 11, 28 to 30. When we take the Passover, we read this every year. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation or judgment or condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body, which was beaten for the remission of our sins against our own bodies, and therefore so that we can be healed. When we look at the stripes, it says, By his stripes are ye healed. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. There's that word again. Notice how often, how many times, in how many different scriptures the Bible uses the expression sleep for the state of the dead. Job 14 and verse 12. Fascinating passage of scripture through verse 15. Job is just before the Psalms, if you're looking for it in the Old Testament. So man lieth down and riseth not. Till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. There it is again. There's that word again. What does the Bible say about the death of individuals? When someone is dead, what is their state? What are they thinking? Nothing. What are they remembering? Nothing. Do they smell anything? Not of which they're aware, no. Their noses may have been burnt and so many ashes cast on the water. Can't smell anymore. They don't have a nose. What is their state? Man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would keep me secret until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? Look, look at the contrast. Death is not to be alive, and alive is to be alive and not to be dead. A complete opposite contrast here. I, all the days of my appointed time, will I wait till my change come? And study that in the light of 1 Corinthians 15, 50-52. We shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and the alive, the people who are living, shall be changed. As Christ said, you must be born again. Marvel not that I said you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If you are flesh, you're composed of flesh. You're a living, breathing, water-drinking, food-ingesting, physical, metabolic organism. And you're subject to death by any number and manner and method of, of modes or things you can imagine, including fire. 
we can be completely destroyed and reduced to a little vial of ashes, as we know. And, of course, I don't really think that that should be done. That's my own personal opinion for the simple reason that God's judgments are the judgments that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah and that of Gehenna fire, which is the destruction of the human body and the human spirit in Gehenna fire. And since God allowed His Son to be buried in the tomb for three days and three nights, and since we see all the patriarchs going to great lengths, as did Abraham in the case of the cave in Machpelah, to buy a place to go bury Sarah, and we see that they were gathered unto their fathers, and they were laid down in the grave, and that is God's method to preserve the body in the grave until the time of the resurrection, then I personally would advise my loved ones and my family members and any who would ask my opinion, I can't quote a scripture in the Bible that says, Thou shalt not be cremated. But to me, the complete destruction of the human body by fire is not God's will. And I would so advise people. I think that resting as in sleep, as if in a profound sleep, is what God indicates in the Bible, and that's what He shows about the state of the dead continually. So He said, I will wait until my change come. You shall call, and I will answer thee. You will have a desire to the work of your hands. If you will turn to Daniel 12, verses 1 through 3, it follows right along in Daniel 11, and men divided it into chapters and verses. Daniel 11, the longest prophecy in all of the Bible, it ends up with the time of the Great Tribulation, which is also here in Daniel 12 and verse 1. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even at that same time, exactly the time described by Christ in Matthew 24 and verses 21 and 2. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's that word again. How many times does God have to tell us something before we believe Him? Once? Twice? Thrice? Well, we're seeing it over and over and over again. Them which are asleep, that's once. Sleep in Jesus, that's twice. Are asleep, that's three times. Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, that's four. Awake him out of sleep, that's five. Many sleep, that's six. They shall not be raised out of their sleep, that's seven. Many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, that's eight. Do we need nine, twenty, forty? Will you believe it if it's in the Bible 250 times? There are people who will not believe that because they've had ingrained into their minds until it is a part of them that their loved ones, who might have even had a heavenly vision when they died, and old people are far more willing to believe in what elderly old grandmother said she thought she saw, swing low, sweet chariot, than they are what the Word of God says. And people have written many a book, and there are all kinds of testimonies and statements and scriptures that are arrested and twisted and distorted out of all meaning in book after book after book. You can read if you want to get really confused about the state of the dead, the immortality of the soul, going to heaven when you die, or the horrifying punishing for all eternity of an ever-burning hell. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. I, for one, have accepted that. One hundred percent. I believe it down to the sole of my feet and the depths of my being, because I know it is absolutely the truth of God. So therefore I know that my dad and my mom are profoundly, deeply asleep. 
I know my brother Dick is deeply asleep. He's not suffering anymore like he did the last week of his life over there at the UCLA Medical Center, all crushed and broken up from an automobile accident. I know that my sister Beverly is profoundly and deeply asleep. I know that Papa Hammer and Norma Hammer and Bob Hammer and poor Dick Hammer, who died comatose from a uh, uh, comatose in a uh, diabetes coma, only I think age 19, is profoundly asleep. They're not suffering. They're not having a reunion in heaven. They're not up there cavorting around. They're not watching over us. They're not aware of what we're doing. It's just like you wake up and, well, where have I been? And the last instant, the, the, the last thought that was in their minds, whatever the last conscious thought was, in some cases that's a week or two before people die because they're completely unconscious and the brain has been so perhaps anesthetized that they're not aware of anything. So whatever the last moment of consciousness was will be the first moment of consciousness. What happened? Where was I? As I was saying then, oh... We made it. We didn't crash in the airplane. Whatever is going to happen in their minds in the next instant is going to be like a split second. When you understand that about the state of people that you have dearly loved and whom you miss so badly. I've had dream after dream after dream, and I think the reason of it, they say that if you cannot have what they like to call closure when someone you love dies, that it will haunt you and bother you for years. Well, my dad made me stay, as he called it, on the firing line in Springfield, Missouri, preaching night after night while my brother was lingering in agony in a hospital out in Los Angeles, and he died, and dad didn't even let me cancel a campaign and go back there for the funeral. I stayed in Springfield, Missouri, preaching so dad could come over there and take the first Sabbath after all those four solid weeks of preaching six nights a week to raise up a church of 200 people. And I never got to see my brother Dick. The last time I saw him, he was alive and well. I didn't get to visit him in the hospital. So a couple, three, four times a year, Dick will appear somewhere. He's been in Paris. He's been in London. He's been hiding out. He'll come back and he'll be with us. And then he's gone again. And it's not fair. Dick, why have you done that? Why, why can't you stay with us this time? And I'll have this dream. But I realize it's only a dream and that Dick is not alive that he's profoundly asleep. And I'm always grateful for what happened. And my father was there with him in the last moment before Dick died and out of his shattered jaw when Dad reached down and touched his shoulder and, and hugged him a little bit. Dick said, Dad, I love you, when he was just so near death. And I'm so glad that they had that moment together. It meant so much to my father and to me. So Job said that... They would be raised out of their sleep, and Daniel wrote, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And that is depicted in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Notice Jeremiah 51, 56, and 57. And this is talking about the judgments upon Babylon the Great, the great mystery religion, the great city called Babylon. It is a great merchandising mart of all the nations. Because the spoiler is, a, is come upon her, even upon Babylon, and her mighty men are taken, every one of their bows is broken, for the eternal God of recompenses shall surely requite. And I will make drunk her princes and her wise men, her captains, her rulers, and her mighty men, and they shall sleep a perpetual sleep. 
and not awake, says the king, whose name is the Eternal of hosts. Now these are not the dead in Christ. These are illiterate, unconverted, unknowing, non-Christian Babylonians. And God is going to put them out of their misery and kill them. And that's the first death. It's given to all men to die once. This may even imply the spiritual incorrigible, because it goes on to say, they will sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, seeming to imply that these are the incorrigible wicked who will be destroyed and will never awake, will never be resurrected. Again, the Bible using the term sleep to describe death. A lot of you have heard the gorgeous, beautiful oratorios and a wonderful music of the Messiah. And at Christmas time, they usually always play that. Well, we didn't. We waited until January or thereafter, and we would have the Ambassador College Chorale. And I used to be able to sing all of the bass oratorios of the Messiah and just dearly loved to do it. And some of the prettiest ones also were based upon Job 19:25 to 27. I remember my sister Beverly singing that particular song for Sabbath services and at the Holy Days. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Remember that? I know that my Redeemer liveth. It's a beautiful, beautiful song. Turn to Job 19, 25 to 27. For I know, said Job, that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, kind of bizarre, macabre, and ugly, and horrifying to think about, yet in my flesh shall I see God going to be restored, going to be resurrected, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me, meaning his vital organs and his viscera and his body be completely destroyed. Turn to Psalm 6 and verse 5. David said, For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? So are the dead praising God all the time? No, you know better than that. Is there any recollection, any remembrance, any knowledge of God in the grave when the dead are soundly and profoundly asleep? No. Psalm 146, 3 and 4. David said, Put not your trust in princes, even fanciful ones who are not real princes, nor in the Son of Man in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, he returneth to his earth. In that very day his thoughts perish. What's that telling you? They're unconscious. They're oblivious. They don't know. They're not thinking, feeling, saying, hearing, remembering, experiencing. They are completely oblivious. Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 20. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. We're just critters. We're human flesh and blood creatures. And the word creature could easily be used there because it is nephesh. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beasts. Yea, even one thing befalleth them. That is, one event comes to them all. Remember the old limerick, I once had a dog whose name was Rover, and when he died, he died all over. 
We once had a canary named Sankey, and when Sankey was lying in the bottom of the cage with its claws up like that, and was stiff as a board, and when we took it out and buried it, my brother and I very cheerfully, poor little Sankey, used to sing to us all the time, stiff as a board, shouldn't have done that to us, had no right, but it died. And when it was dead, it died all over. Or my little dog, Shep, that got run over out in the street in front of our house, we covered it with newspapers. We took a fly swatter made out of wire to keep the flies that were trying to gather upon it. It was still barely alive, and we had a little place there for a breathing hole. And then it died, and I cried all the way out to the orchard at a neighbor's house where we were going to bury it beneath the tree as I stroked the little tail. I was only about three and a half or four. My little dog, Shep, died. And when he died, he died all over, and we put him in the ground. So God's Word says the very same thing of us. As one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man has no preeminence above a beast for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Now, Christ continually spoke about the resurrection. You all know that very well. Talked about it continually. And very early on in his ministry, if you will turn to John 5, 25 to 29, and I wanted Dr. Graham so badly to just say this. Why not quote this scripture? Certainly Dr. Graham knows that the scriptures about the resurrection have got to be in the Bible. As I said to my wife, I wish Connie Chung would have asked me those questions. But the likes of Connie Chung and Charlie Gibson are not going to come and ask me any questions whatsoever. I'll guarantee you. Not on subjects like that they won't. Not if they've done their homework. Not if they know what I know about the Word of God. Not if they suspect what my answers might be. John 5.25 Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Read that again. The hour is coming. When he said, now is, well, yes, Lazarus, Tabitha, arise, Peter, at the house of Dorcas, there were a few cases in the New Testament and also those who were resurrected at the moment of Christ's death. But the hour is coming, now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, so they haven't been hearing it in their state of death, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves, they are not in heaven, they are not in hell, they're not in limbo, they're not in limbus infantum or limbus patrium, they are in the grave, shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good, that's the ones we've read about that are the dead in Christ, under the resurrection of life. And they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation or judgment, and you read that in Luke 16 in the case of the sumptuously faring rich man who absolutely ignored poor Lazarus covered with sores sitting outside of his gate when he could have easily set up Lazarus in a little bungalow, made his life happy for himself, and it would have been less than pocket change for the rich man. But the rich man is given a glimpse of a wall of fire approaching him when you see in that parable. And that's called the resurrection of damnation. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the lives, as it should read, the Greek word is suke, of them that were beheaded. Now, souls, wraiths, spirit, essence, cannot be beheaded. 
But these are individuals who were beheaded and lost their lives in that horrifying way for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image. Isn't that amazing that people would do that to you because you would testify about Jesus Christ of Nazareth? You would bear witness to his death, burial, and resurrection. You would preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. You would be faithful to the word of God, which we are reading right now, scripture after scripture after scripture. Them that sleep in Jesus, them that slept in Jesus, will he bring with him. And people will not believe it. And the time is going to come when people will not be able to get away with saying in any public forum what I'm telling you here today. And I'm not teaching you philosophy. I'm not reading to you poetry. I'm not giving you my idea. I will not say this is the way I look at it or this is the way I interpret it. I will just give you the word of God and let you decide if that is true. The time is going to come. When people who stand for the word of God will lose their lives in the most horrifying fashion for doing exactly that. They had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, you've heard Paul Harvey say the rest of the story, he likes to drag it out, the rest of the dead live not again. Who are the rest of the dead? Well, the dead in Christ are the first fruits from the earth. They are all those who have been converted from the days of Jesus Christ and his own disciples until right now and on up to the time of the preaching of the two witnesses and the 144,000 and the great innumerable multitude who will be converted at the time of the heavenly signs. And they are the dead in Christ, and they're called the first harvest of the earth, the first fruits from the dead, depicted by the annual holy day of the Feast of First Fruits, or the Feast of Sabbaths, or the Feast of Weeks, which we now call Pentecost, because it was arrived at by counting to the 50th day, the seventh Sabbath, and tomorrow after the seventh Sabbath, beginning with the weekly Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, when the wave sheep was offered. Who are the rest of the dead? Everybody else. Then you mean all the Chinese? Yeah. All the Japanese? Yep. All the Africans? Yep. All the Asians? Everybody all through Australasia and Indonesia and Southeast Asia? Yes, all of them. All the people from the days of Attila the Hun and way back before, the days of Genghis Khan? Oh yeah, way back before then. The Ming Dynasty? Yeah, all of those. You mean hundreds of millions of them? Yeah, all of them. All of them. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And then they come out of their graves and the earth is a tremendously populated with billions upon billions of people who are going to be given a greater opportunity than you have in one way. Because you can't see God and you can't talk to God and you can't see him face to face, but they will. You cannot see members of the divine God family, but they will. You can't see the 24 elders. You can't see the cherubim and the seraphim. You can't talk to Michael or Gabriel, but they will. They will be able to do so. Is that a chance? People argue about a second chance. There are a lot of people who are very bitter about their religion, very angry about what they know. They just can't believe it that anybody that isn't a member of their church is going to get to go to heaven. So everybody who isn't a member of their church is going to go to hell. 
And that's not, you know, hail like Hail Mary or hail that comes out of the sky. It's hail. And that's the way they say it here in Texas. And a lot of people wish each other would do that even on the golf course. <laughs> and uh, the real way to get a fight, I'll tell you, I learned this in the Navy. Don't ever say this because I was told that many times in the Navy and I just had to clap my hand over my mouth. You don't want to say, good, I will go, but give me a key so I can let your mother out when I get there. You don't want to say that because instantly you will be having a problem. These are some of the retorts that people have come up with in order to start a fight. But there are some people that are very bitter about their religion. And when they are told the truth about the great second resurrection of all those who have never had a chance, they want to insist you've had a chance if you've lived at all. All right, what about my proverbial little three-year-old Chinese baby girl who died before the missionary who had a flat tire and couldn't get there to the village to teach her to sing, Yes, Jesus Loves Me, and has never heard the name of Jesus Christ. What about her? What about her soul? You know, there was a very famous evangelist whose name I will not reveal. My son heard this and told me about it only a few weeks ago, who was asked a question not unlike that. What about someone who has never heard the name of Jesus Christ in the Orient, some other country, and they die? Well, if you, if you believe in this nonsense of the immortality of the soul, you've really got a problem with that. Well, he danced all around it. He did everything from the minuet to the boogie-woogie. And by the time he danced around that issue and hemmed and hawed and so on, dug his hands in his pocket and kind of dug his toe in the dirt and said, oh, Chuck, a couple times, came around and said, well... The only way anybody is going to be saved is through the name of Jesus Christ. Well, you're right, Mr. Evangelist. You're right. But the point is you ought to know, if you knew your Bible at all, that the rest of the dead lived not again till the thousand years were finished. And that God has decreed that everybody gets a chance. Now, a chance is a chance. If you're standing back there at the kiosk in the carnival and they give you a ring to try to toss it upon a pole and you win the teddy bear, everybody steps up and pays a quarter to have a chance. And if you're elbowed out of the way and you don't have a quarter and you never get up there to toss it to win the teddy bear, you don't have a chance. If somebody is born in a foreign nation that never heard the name of Jesus Christ, doesn't know one thing, what about Papua New Guinea, the savages, some of which think still practice cannibalism? They have never heard from any Christian missionary. And all down through the centuries, there have been hundreds of millions, no, in fact, billions of human beings who have never heard the name of Christ. What about all those who live in ancient Akkad and Kalneh and Sumeria and Babylonia and Nineveh and all the great city-states and all the great empires long before the time Jesus Christ of Nazareth ever set foot on this earth in the first place? What about all those that lived from creation to the flood and they could have numbered? I put it together. I've done it with my students and calculators have been pulled out and we figured 25 years of age, only three per family and gone right on through about 2,000 solid years and it comes out just like which would you rather, a million dollars now or a penny doubled every day for 30 days? It comes out to more than five million. And we put our calculators to it. And we found that the earth could easily have had four and one-half billion population by the time of the flood of Noah. What about all those people? The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. And that's the simple answer. There is coming a great second resurrection. 
in 50 to 53. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep. There's that word again. There it is again. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we, that is, and Paul at that time thought that that included him, that he would be alive at that time. And it certainly applies to the last living generation of the time just before Christ returns. We which are alive and remain shall be changed. He said, in a moment in the twinkling of the light, the last trump, the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. You wouldn't want to see Marilyn Monroe today. You wouldn't want to see Jack Kennedy today. No, because these bodies are subject to corruption and decay. I've seen various mummies, and they did their best to try to preserve them, but they did a pretty poor job, and even that is the best job that's ever been done by any society in preserving bodies, including Amenhotep and some of the others, in the Cairo Museum, and there they are, with the bone structure there, and leathery-looking skin, and leathery-looking lips, and little bits and pieces of their ears remaining, and in the sarcophagi with a glass top on it, where they've taken some of the bandages off of them. And the ancient Egyptians were pretty good at trying to preserve a human body, but they couldn't succeed perfectly. They still are corrupted, and they decay. This corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. A lot of people go around living their lives like they think they are immortal. Some people live on the edge. If you glean something from this, it's not my fault. Some people push the envelope, so to speak, and any pilot knows what I'm talking about, beyond all reason and get in trouble because, and especially when you're young, you tend to think of yourself as virtually indestructible. I did a lot of foolish things when I was a kid. I went way too fast on motorcycles. I went way too fast in automobiles. I ventured out way too far in the ocean. I dove into huge big waves when I shouldn't have, and one young man named Gary Seafak, who was a beautiful young man with a tremendous visage, powerfully built, did exactly that in the surf down off of Southern California, and it crushed his spine, and he spent the, is still alive and spending the rest of his days as a cripple emaciated in a wheelchair. I was very blessed, very fortunate. Sometimes it says God takes care of fools. I had a few close calls, not because I myself was all that much of a daredevil when I was flying aircraft, but I reminded my wife of one or two the other day. She's been with me on three occasions. On two of them, she didn't know, or I think all three of them, she didn't even know what was going on, but by the time I knew it was a problem, it was over, so there was no difficulty. But I have come within, as they say, the proverbial Nat's eyelash of not being here and of being just so much smoking red meat falling into the ground in a crushed airplane. So I know that it is it's possible. But I never lived on the edge when I went snow skiing. I stuck to the slopes that I thought I could handle. I never skied out of control. I got to be a pretty good skier. I could bomb through the woods and I did little jumps, not big ones. And my boys became better skiers than I. I was able to slalom on a single ski. I've never skydived, though my son David does so just about every week, because I have always said that the only time I'm going to jump out of an airplane is if the thing's on fire and i got a parachute on my back. 
And uh, they would never get me to skydive because they'd never be able to get my thumbprints off the doorpost before they kicked me out. I would deface the airplane. Uh, I want to have wings out there if the engine quits, and I think I'll be able to handle it if it does. But I have never felt that I am impervious and that I'm somehow destined to just, you know, take Satan's there. He tried to get Christ to do that, and I think sometimes people listen to little voices they shouldn't. I don't stand right on the very edge of the Grand Canyon. I'm back a few feet just to make it look good. I'm on the precipice. But I won't go all the way up and look over. Uh, I'm not going to press the envelope. Some people do. Is it really a curse on a particular family, or is it because some people among the rich and famous who have two and three and five homes, who seasonally will go snow skiing or who will sail and who will fly airplanes and who will do all sorts of things, who will go to Cannes for the film festival and go to all sorts of places, tend to do things which the average human being might not do, tend to have the possibility of toys and machines that are not available to the average human being. Is that a part of it? In the 13th chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 5, and I've gone over this time again, I'll just read this quickly. There were present at that season, some had told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and Jesus said, Do you suppose that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they had suffered such things? Now, no one thinks that John Kennedy Jr. and his wife and sister-in-law were bad people. No, to the contrary. All this last week and ten days, we've been told what absolutely wonderful people they were. And everyone has had only the very gracious best to say about them, almost to the point of adulation. Not one bad mark against anybody's life that anybody's brought out, has there? You don't speak evil of the dead. This is a terrible tragedy. Your heart goes out to that family, and certainly to the family of those two daughters, the Bessette family. Anyone that would lose two daughters at the same time, uh, they have been basically in the shadows, and the Kennedy family has been in the fore, but lots of people have made that comment that their hearts go out to the Bissett family, and ours certainly do as well. And our prayers should be with them. A terrible, terrible trauma and tragedy for them. Does anyone want to claim that God looked down and got these people because they were bad people? That would be horrible to even contemplate such a thing. And yet there are people who have done just that. We loved very dearly a wonderful couple that my wife and I enjoyed our early marriage with John and Audrey Hill. And many years later, Audrey died of various complications following the breaking of a leg. There was a young man who was a minister in a worldwide church who stood up in the pulpit of one of the worldwide churches and told his congregation that God took Audrey in order to punish John. I don't know what kind of a God it is that young man worshipped, but he was so absolutely twisted and bent out of shape in his mind about the God of the Bible that he didn't recognize him. God doesn't kill your loved one to hurt your feelings or to get back at you. That is absolutely ridiculous. Here's the answer right here. You suppose they were sinners? Are you willing to believe Christ? I tell you, nay. God does not look down and zap people. There are very few cases in all of history, and God did it himself, of course. For example, example, Uzzah at the ark. But this was an accident. This was happenstance. This was being caught doing something they shouldn't have done by the armed forces of that day. 
or those 18, he said, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. Do you think they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. It doesn't mean in that fashion. It doesn't mean you're going to perish by sitting in the shade of a great wall and have a lot of ancient mortar give way and bricks and rubble come cascading down and crush you to death. It doesn't mean you're going to be hacked to bits by a sword. It merely means you're going to perish according to happenstance, circumstance, accident, or tragedy of some sort. And it means that there won't be any significance to it. There won't be any particular reason for it. And that God is not involved in it. God can know about it. God could have seen it, but God didn't do it. And God wasn't involved in it. Now, to be... I, I don't like this term because it's been applied by someone else to God's people sometimes, but to be in a, an attitude of benign neglect is almost the way you could characterize the way God views this rotten, filthy, evil world that has turned its back on Him and on His laws, and God is not interfering on a daily basis. Now, God knew that that was happening, didn't He? God knew that airplane was out of control and spiraling down. Do you believe that? I believe that. I believe God could have known that. I think He did know it. I think God knew that. Did God prevent it? No. Could God have prevented it? Yes. Was God interested in having JFK Jr. as President of the United States? Obviously not. Did God do this to prevent him from becoming president? I doubt it very much. No, not at all. Don't think so for a minute. It was not that God was involved one way or another. God just simply wasn't involved. He could see it, but it was just benign neglect. He didn't interfere. didn't stop it. He didn't prevent it. There wasn't any preventive legislation. He didn't prevent that young man from forcing the envelope, from living on the edge, from going out and doing something he shouldn't have done. When Christ tried to explain this same principle, they tried to kill him. If you will turn to Luke 4, 16 to 30. He came to Nazareth, where, where he'd been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, quote, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. To whom was he addressing that scripture? Jews. Where? In a synagogue, in the church. Well, they were the religious ones, and the religious Jews were in the minority. These were church-going synagogue members. And he quoted what? Christ had sent him to do what? To preach deliverance to captives. Would these people have agreed with Christ for one moment that they were captive to their sins? Well, they were citizens of an occupied nation. They were being ruled over by another country. Were they captive to their own sins? Well, yes, but they wouldn't have believed that. Sight to the blind. Were they blind spiritually? Christ said of the Pharisees, let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind lead the blind, they shall both fall in the ditch. And Christ said what? Let them alone. Don't even mess with them. Forget it. God isn't calling them. 
and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book or the scroll, gave it back to the minister, and sat down, and the eyes of all them in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness. It was real quiet. You could hear a pin drop, I imagine, and wonder to the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So he was articulate, and he was a great speaker. He had a great voice. He was speaking wonderfully. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here in your own country. And he said unto them, no prophet is accepted in his own country. And he said, in another case, nor among his own kin. He said, I tell you a truth. Now listen to this and think. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And the Sidonian lady was a Gentile, not even a Jewess. Did God know there was a famine? Not only did he know it, he may well have been the one who sent it. God knew there was a famine. Did God know that people were starving to death? Oh, yes. Did God know people were dying of malnutrition and disease? Oh, yes. Were there people dying in the straightness of this famine? Oh, yes. Thousands of them. Did God know it? Could He see it? Oh, yes, sure. And the Jews knew their history. They probably knew how many died in that particular famine. Maybe they knew exactly what Josephus had to say about it. Maybe they knew what their fathers had told them when they were growing up. And he said... He didn't send them to anybody except just this one Gentile lady up in the city of Sidon. And many lepers were in Israel in the day of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Did God know that there was leprosy in Israel? Leprosy is a horrible, ugly, disfiguring disease where your nose and your ears and the tips of your fingers and toes just sort of rot off. And horrible big chillblains and blotches and, and scabs and horrible looking, disfiguring, whitish-like rotting flesh all over. Your flesh just rots right away from you. Horrible, ugly. You can smell a leper coming. They put them out on the island of Molokai, remember, in the Hawaiian Islands to isolate them because they thought it was terribly infectious. It is not. It never was. It is not infectious. You notice that Jesus Christ actually touched lepers. Not infectious at all, but they thought it was. Did God know that there were people dying of horrible, disfiguring diseases. Unto none of them was he sent. None of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And he wasn't even a Jew. All that were in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill upon where their city was built. And I've been there, and there's a very steep hill. Nazareth is well up, and it's actually got conifers and pines and firs and looks like a little bit of Oregon up at Nazareth. It's quite high up above the uh, mountains above the Sea of Galilee, a little bit south of there above the Valley of Sharon. And they wanted to throw him down that brow of the hill whereupon their city was built that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. And there you have it. We have printed, and I think it's interesting, if you have one of our new bills with you, uh, I don't know if it is the 20 or the 10, but I think it is the, I happen to have a 20. And there is on the back of it a picture of the White House, 
And instead of putting these words outside the frame of the White House, they chose to put the words on the new bills inside the frame of the White House. It's a plain bill. There's a lot of white space there because they have a watermark with a face that is in view. You can see through it. And it says right above the White House, I think it's interesting, in God we trust, almost as if they think that's where he lives. I thought of that when I saw that bill. Well, do you get it? Do you know why they tried to kill Jesus Christ? Because he said, you say, we're God's country. In God we trust. This is, we are God's people. This is God's church. Oh, dear brethren, we're just so rejoicing to know how God is moving among us here tonight. Why, the Lord is doing such great deeds here today. It's wondrous, the magnificent miracles He has performed. And I mean, every one of them, God is working here. God is working. Well, is God working? No, no, not there. Here. Right here, right now, tonight. Hey, right now, tonight. How many sweaty evangelists have ever used these tactics to try to get people to cough up their change? Well, they said, this is God's country. We are God's people. And God is involved. God is doing things. He's pulling the strings. He's pressing the buttons. He's making the decisions. He's preventing this. He's doing that. He's allowing the other thing. He's causing that. And therefore, they wrestle with this. Well, now, God must have had something to do with it. Remember, I told you that Dr. Graham said, and I quote, Everything that happens is according to God's plan. End of quote. Everything that happens is according to God's plan. No, I'm afraid... It isn't. Not according to his plan. It cannot contravene his plan. It cannot upset or overthrow his plan. But God didn't plan for those young people to die in that horrible way. God didn't plan to break the hearts of those family members. God didn't plan to break the heart of millions of people in this nation. God didn't plan for the Bissett family to suffer what they're going through right now. No, God had nothing to do with it whatsoever. He was absolutely just up in heaven, benignly neglecting to do anything one way or the other, good or bad, because this is not God's world. This is not God's country. And God doesn't live in the White House. And this is not God's government. And these are not God's institutions. And these are not God's churches. And this is not the country of God whose eyes are upon it, pulling the strings, making the decisions, ruling, governing, doing everything to control this country. We are on our own because this nation has turned its back on God and God has done exactly what it wanted. And that is to just walk off in the universe and leave us to our own devices. Time and chance and happenstance. You push the envelope, you can get hurt. Sometimes our machines betray us. Sometimes our toys break down. Sometimes our decision-making is flawed. Sometimes we make wrong choices. Every one of us is a free moral agent, and only when you repent and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you have the Holy Spirit of God in your mind, does it make any difference. To likewise perish is to perish meaninglessly, but to perish in the sight of God reminds me of the scripture where God says, Precious in the sight of the eternal is the death of his saints. And every single one of them is preserved as Job wrote, I will wait till my change come. 
For thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Thou shalt have a desire to the work of thy hands. And in my flesh I shall see God. And I shall behold him for myself, and not the eyes of another. But with my own eyes shall I see God. And someday that's going to happen to JFK Jr. And his whole family. And the Bazette girls. And all the others who have died in seemingly mindless human tragedies. God allows it because God simply does not intervene one way or the other.